Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon, fellows. My name is Mike Herring, and if you can hear what sounds like a smile in my voice, it's because I feel like I'm getting away with something. I'm going to steal about 45 minutes of Warren Lightfoot's time, which I'm looking forward to as a real treat. How are you, Warren? I'm doing fine, Mike. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. So, Warren, as I mentioned to our fellows, I want to spend 45 minutes mostly just reacquainting the college with you. You're certainly no stranger to the college, having risen through the chairs and occupied just about every leadership role there is in the college. You mentioned I've had just about every chair. Well, as a matter of fact, Mike, I was three years as treasurer, and that's a world record. Nobody else has ever served three years as treasurer. And some of my so-called friends said, it's because the past presidents couldn't quite make up their mind about me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know how you should have taken that, right? I like that. So I want to start with a couple softballs. I've never heard of Luverne, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about it. Well, it's 2,200 people when I lived there, and it's 2,200 people today. And it's a great place, Mike, to be from and not in. Right, But it was a good place to grow up. I will tell you that. And I do believe that working a lot down there and working around folks who believed in hard work helped me later on in all these jury trials. I sort of knew how my jurors thought. At least I told myself I did. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I understand from my background on you, Warren, I did a deep dive into Warren Lightfoot. And I know that you come from a long line of lawyers. Is that right? That's true. I was going to be the fourth generation of my family to practice law in Luverne, Alabama, but I married a Birmingham girl, Mike, and you know how that goes. That was the end of that. Actually, the way the conversation went was this. When we got engaged, she said, now we're not going back down to Luverne, are we? And I said, well, you know what Ruth in the Bible said, whether thou goest, I will go, whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. She said, I don't care about Ruth. What's her name? What are we going to do? That's right. Yeah, I love it, man. I love it. So growing up in a family of lawyers, was there any sort of expectation or pressure on you to carry on the family tradition? There was, Mike, a little expectation that I would do that. And somehow it suited me just fine, as long as I didn't have to practice real estate law. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, Mike, but my dad would send me over from his law office when I was a young fellow to do title searches. And I said, this is not what I want to do. But when he would go to court, I would see how that worked. And I said, now this, this might work. So your dad was a trial lawyer or was he a trial lawyer? Well, he was an Atticus Finch. He did a little bit of everything and he got paid get this, Mike, in chickens and livestock and poultry, pork, beef. So it was an unusual background. Wow. I mean, it sounds like your dad was what I sort of call a country lawyer, just a country general practitioner. Exactly. Did a little bit of everything and, and used to dread going to court, whereas I couldn't wait to get in the courtroom. We were different about that. Yeah. Yeah. Were you an athlete, Warren? 
I was a semi-athlete, Mike. I always admired the real athletes. I think that athleticism gives people an easy grace in almost any situation, and I'm very envious of that. I, on the other hand, had to work at it, I mean, really hard, and I had modest success. But yeah, I stumbled through there. And if there was an elite group when I was growing up in Luburn High School, it was the athletes, yeah. of which I was barely one. Yeah, you know, thinking back, Warren, I never quite knew what to make of it when my coaches would say of me that I had a lot of heart. <laughs> In retrospect, I get it, right? Because I was never a starter at much of anything, but I, I had all the heart, man. How about that? Right. Absolutely. I hear you. That sounds so familiar, and I understand. I'll tell you what, Mike. In the game of life, give me those guys like you, the ones with heart. That's right. I'll take a fellow with heart over a rooster any day. So where did your competitive streak come from? That's a good question. And my wife has pondered that question, believe me, for 59 years. It carries over to everything, Mike. It's always there in traffic, waiting in line, playing darts, doing anything, playing cards. It's right there on the surface and especially in the courtroom. It's not so much that I really, really want to win. It's that I loathe losing. But you said, where did it come from? Mike, I think it came from my big brother was a star athlete. He could do it all, played every sport and was a star in every one. And I was just barely hanging on in the one sport of football. So it occurred to me that I'm going to have to hustle a little bit more than some of these other guys if I'm going to make it. Yeah, but obviously, you know, we, we don't want to give our audience the wrong impression because if I'm not mistaken, you made it through the Citadel you were an Army infantry officer and a paratrooper, right? That's correct. All right. That's, that's right. Yeah, so let's not mislead our audience here. You had some absolute skills and agility. Yeah, actually, it's more like you, Mike, more heart than anything else. And that's what it took in paratrooper school. You had to stick with it. And my wife still can't believe I did that. Neither could my parents, by the way, at the time, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. That's right. Why leave a perfectly good airplane mid-flight, right? Correct. So let me ask you, let's stay with this theme of paratrooping for a second. Is the experience of the step off the plane at all akin to stepping up into the well of the courtroom to begin your opening statement? You've picked the jury, you've gotten through pretrial motions. Are there parallels there? Exactly. You're ahead of me, Mike, as usual. That's exactly what it's like. When you stand up and say, may it please the court for that opening statement, it's just like stepping out and hanging on to that ripcord. Actually, you hang on to your reserve chute. Your ripcord is attached to the plane, so it pulls by itself if it works. But it's a leap of faith in both cases. So I, I want to segue. You obviously became a trial lawyer. You had an inkling for trial work as a youngster. Do you think some people are wired for it? I do. I really think this, Mike, that it helps to be competitive in that courtroom setting. When an expert's on the stand, for example, just to take it down to a microcosm, and that expert knows a heck of a lot about that subject. But if I've done my homework, I know just about as much as he does about the very narrow little things I'm going to ask him about. And I love matching wits in that little tiny area. And if I can beat that expert in front of the jury, it's mano a mano. And if I can do that 
it's a great satisfaction, Mike. I mean, that's just the way I'm wired. Did you ever have a sense that your competitive juices kind of ran away with your examination? Yeah, I always had to have a little bit in the back of my mind. Don't get too fired up. Take it easy. Because, because this, Mike, my overriding desire, representing a defendant, as I did 98% of the time, I wanted that jury to like me. I wanted that jury not to want to punish me or my client. And that's why throughout, even though I'm whipping that expert, I am a total gentleman and I'm being so nice and solicitous and I'm being nice to his lawyer and the jury. All they can tell, I'm just really, really a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. I want to stay there for a second. Do you think there's a place for humor in trial work? There is. And I had to learn this the hard way. The jury loves to laugh. If they feel good about themselves, then they have a sense of humor. And that's who you want for the defendant. And if you can poke fun at yourself, they just love it. That's what they will laugh at. And I learned as I got older and I would draw back a nub from time to time with some of my questioning. Sometimes I would ask a witness as I matured, I would ask a witness a question and the witness would just hammer me with the answer. And I'd stop and look at the judge and say, well, judge, I wish I hadn't asked that question. And the jury would explode. That's making points. I lost some points, but I made even more than I lost. That's really insightful. But you got to have a real confidence in yourself. And your client has to have some confidence in you, too, right? To, to concede to the judge that you just stepped in it in front of the jury, right? <laughs> you were right about that. Four clients sitting over everything. What? What did he say? For years, Warren, I, like you, I enjoy trial work. I haven't done it as long as you have, but I often found myself sort of stepping back while I'm in the midst of an examination, trying to observe myself in front of the jury, if that makes sense. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Put yourself over there in the jury box. What am I looking like right now? How am I coming across? Now, were you ever worried that the jury could see through you? Even if they didn't manifest it with furrowed brows or with gestures, that somehow they could see through you. Were you ever concerned about that? Yeah, a little bit, Mike. I don't have the greatest sense of humility, but as George <laughs> Burns said, if you can fake humility, you got it made. And I think I was able to pull that off, but I was worried, like you say, they might see through this. I'm a little smart aleck defense lawyer if I'm not careful. So in that moment, when you're in the well of the courtroom, as things are going well or not so well, you can't hide. There's nothing you can do to duck the incoming when it starts. Beautifully put, Mike. And that is such an important part of trial work. You're right. You put it all out there, Mike. And you know, all the time you're doing that, that in Teddy Roosevelt's words, we are daring greatly, at least Dared greatly. And, you know, win or lose, you're going to get scored. You're going to get graded. If you're innately hyper-competitive, like I'm afraid I am, there's nothing better than getting graded at the end of your performance. That's right. And you got to be able to live with the grade, right? I mean, you got to be able to withstand the sting of a loss. Yes, you do. There is appeal, of course. Sometimes there's a quirk. Sometimes there's a reason. And you didn't just blow it. But there was a reason. There was a ringer on the jury. Or there's somebody who didn't tell you something as one of the jurors. And you might get it reversed. But most of the time, you just face up to it. Okay, I got whipped. You walk over to your opponent's chair and you shake his hand or her hand and say, good job. You gave me a good ass whipping. Yeah. 
do you think that our ability as trial lawyers to do that, you know, whether you call that humility or grace or whatever, do you think that we are losing sight of that? I do. I'm afraid we are. What I hear, what I read is that there's not so many cases being tried now. A lot of them are being settled and trials are a rare event now. And I deplore that because it was good for us to get in there and take those licks. And as you put it, absorb those incomings, rise above it, take it, yeah, move on. Yeah. You know, I, I have the sense that you were blessed to have some really spectacular mentors in Hobart McWhorter and John Morrow. Share with our audience some of the more memorable lessons from them or just words of advice that they gave you years ago that stuck with you. Yeah, they were great. And Hobart, actually, Hobart just died and he was a great mentor. I will say this, bless his heart, he showed me more in how not to prepare for trial than (laughs) to prepare because he prepared at the last minute all night long. And I thought, you know, I'm not doing that. I mean, I need some sleep. I don't know about you, Mike, but... Hobart could do it, but I learned from Hobart, get ready way ahead of time. Give yourself some lead time. Yeah. I learned from John Mara, a soft cell many, many times is more effective than a hard cell. And he was a master of that. And he was right. It sounds to me like over time, you emulated more of John's style than anything else. I did. Hobart came out guns blazing, Mike. Here's the thing. In the 90s, Alabama was a dreadful place for defendants in tort cases or any kind of case. It was known as tort hell, and juries were returning huge verdicts, and they were being affirmed by a plaintiff-oriented Supreme Court. So it was a terrifying place, and you couldn't make a misstep when you were trying a case for a target defendant. Any kind of misstep would be extremely expensive. And Hobart's approach was to come out with guns blazing and take no prisoners, and maybe he might win it. But Mike, if he lost, mm-hmm. then it was a moonshot. And that's not quite what I was looking for. I was always hedging, always hedging. Okay, I think I'm going to win this, but if I lose, I'm pretty sure you're not mad at me or my client. When you obviously started your very successful firm and you became the mentor to younger lawyers, how did you convey your observations of Hobart to the people that you mentored? Because there are people on this call I suspect that will take some wisdom from this. Yeah, I did. I told all our young people, I preached to them constantly, listen, you make friends as you go along. You can eviscerate this witness. You can eviscerate that expert, but be likable while you're doing it because something may happen. You may lose this case. And if you've taken no prisoners and you've been harsh with everybody and you haven't made any friends, they're not going to look after you when they're back there voting and you're going to get sent to the moon. So you have to be mindful of that. On the defense side in Alabama, Mike, we had to walk on eggshells. It was much harder. I always thought, I'd love to try a plaintiff's case. My plaintiff's friends, I love them. And I think their job is so much laxer. They can relax. They can swim from the chandelier. They can say all kinds of things, and they can get by with it. And I'm over here edging along, being very careful, because that's the way we have to do I take it things have changed in Alabama? They have at the appellate level. And I think it comes on downstream to the trial level too. Verdicts are not as high as they used to be. They're not, instead of 20 million, there might be 5 million now. But still a populist state and jurors are inclined to unload when they see an injustice. Yeah. 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the importance of familiarizing yourself with the local culture, the local attitudes when you come in from out of state to try a case. And you've got local counsel, but unless you're going to be a bump on the log and you're going to have an active role in that trial, you stand up ignorant of the culture at your own peril. Would you agree with that? You do. That's right. And that's a very uneasy feeling. And you've done the best you can to hear from local counsel. Now, look, this is the way these jurors feel about certain things. But still, you're on alien territory. And that means you're even more careful than I was describing earlier, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So, Ron, let me ask you one more question, because you've sort of seen, I would imagine, trial work change a lot over the span of your career. And you've already made one observation that there are far fewer trials than there used to be. What's your sense of how the trials have changed, though, those that go forward? You know, one thought is they involve a lot more technology. Another thought might be that jurors expect somewhat of a show from the lawyers. But you may say to me, my jurors have always expected a show. But I'm really interested in your thoughts on how trial work has changed. Yeah. And Mike, bear in mind that I walked out the door January 1, 2008 Mm -hmm. and closed the door behind me. So I'm not the best authority on how it's changed since then. But Technology was just coming in while I was trying cases at the tail end of my career. And it was marvelous. I mean, if you could show a picture to a client, if you could put up a slide, if you could actually play back a witness's testimony, this was a wonderful innovation for us in the courtroom. And I can only imagine now what they can do. And I hear my young lawyers talk about it and it's totally foreign to me, but but you have to be a master of that, I think, now in the courtroom on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. You know, I wonder if there is a risk or maybe temptation, though, to over rely on that technology, perhaps at the expense of some of the soft skills that you might have had to leverage in your day. That's very astute, Mike. I think it happens. I think they become really good on top of the technology and they forget the basic rules of being a trial lawyer and asking those questions and getting those answers and making an impression. You can't substitute the technology for good old plain trial work, lawyering. Yeah. Warren, what's one of your more memorable victories at trial? No question. It was for Ford Motor Company in 1994, and it was a brain damaged quadriplegic in a semi-vegetative state. And she had just been a passenger in a Ford vehicle that ran off the road for no reason and wrecked. She was rendered into that condition. And so it was just a battle of the experts that they had experts, a whole slew of them on the other side, saying that I think it was a tie rod or something like that had broken and it was defectively manufactured and broken before the impact. And what you have to do there is deal with such enormous sympathy. I mean, I felt sorry for Tricia Isbell. Everybody felt sorry for her. But I had to get the jury to think past that, Mike, and get to the facts and do the right thing. I even had to put on testimony for the defendant as to how much it would cost to look after her for the rest of her life. And it was like $2 million. And the plaintiff proved it would take $5 million to look after her for the rest of her life. And I had to argue damages in closing argument in a case in which I was asking for a jury verdict, verdict for the defendant. And I was having to say, now, if some of you disagree with me, then I want you to keep in mind certain aspects of the damages 
when you're awarding a figure. Mm. It was a verdict for the defendant, and I'll never get over it, and neither will the National Law Journal. We offered $3 million to settle, and they turned it down, and they asked the jury for $40 million. And the judge, the trial judge, a really great judge, retired now. He told me later he wouldn't have cut it by a penny if they'd awarded $40 million. Wow. Wow. How did you feel, Warren? You obviously had gotten a great result for your client, but it sounds like you felt genuine sympathy for Ms. Isbell. I did. And I think that helped my closing argument when I talked about sympathy, because I said, of course, our heart goes out to Tricia. Of course, our heart goes out to her mom and dad. They are good people. You saw them. You heard them testify. They are wonderful people. And we feel so sorry for them. Of course we do. But the judge is going to tell you in his charge that sympathy cannot play a part in your verdict. And now let's go through the expert testimony. And it was a lot longer than that, but I won't bore you with that. They had to listen to a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not boring to me at all. You know, your point is you had to show sympathy. You had to show empathy, right? The jury had to understand that there was no question that Ms. Isbell had been horribly injured, but the trial wasn't about whether she was injured. That was a proven fact. The question was the cause of the injury, right? I'll tell you two other things about Isbell that may be interesting to you. One is we were so concerned about the impact that her appearance would have. She was a pretty girl, and she was just in a semi-comatose state. She could respond by moving a finger, I believe, or fluttering an eyelid. Anyway, we were afraid that when they brought her in, it would be such a dramatic change that it might change everything. So we insisted they bring her in during the jury qualification. And I will tell you this little vignette. Before they brought her in, we asked a few questions of the jurors, and they were in the process of bringing Tricia. And the jurors had a sense of humor, and they were laughing, and we were all yucking it up in the courtroom. And it was a good jury. I could tell that, Mike. This is when the whole venari is in there, maybe 60 jurors ready to be struck. But everybody's laughing and chuckling and having a nice time. And then they roll Trisha in, and it's like the air got sucked out of that courtroom, and it was hyperbaric from that moment on. Yeah, but I get your point. They needed to come to terms with, the subject of that case early on so that the trial wouldn't be dominated by the shock of Ms. Isbell's appearance. Exactly. We thought they might wait till closing argument to bring her in, yeah. which would have just been devastating to us. And what we were able to do then in jury qualification was say, all right, now you see Trisha right here. You see how bad it is. I want to know if you can be fair. If you can't, just hold your hand up and the judge will understand. I will understand. Everybody will. Fascinating. Juan, how long did you practice? 44 years. How many of those years involved active trial practice, would you say? 43. I started out as a municipal financing lawyer, and I don't know, Mike, I think I would have gone and sold antennas or something rather than be that. So early on, did you have to develop a switch? And what I mean by that is there's Warren Lightfoot outside of trial. But when the gavel falls, you hit a switch and you become someone else. Or is the Warren Lightfoot that I might encounter at the Walmart the same person that I'd encounter in trial? It's exactly the same. Exactly. And I've tried to let them see that I had a sense of humor, that I like people, and I like them. I'm such an optimist, Mike. I'm an inveterate optimist. I see things in a rosy sense. And of course, I'm disappointed from time to time, but I think it's a good way to go through life. And I think it's a good way to try cases. And the jury can sense 
I think they can sense, Mike, if there's a fake persona coming in there and trying a jury case. I had a friend, he's dead now, but he did change, Mike. He flipped the switch and he was okay. he, He was kind of a grump, actually, from day to day. If you run into him on the street, he's a grump. But in the courtroom, he had this little smile. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell is this? And I think the jury, somehow they can sense it. Jurors are smart. I think, I I really believe in jurors. I think 99% of jury verdicts are the right verdicts in a well-tried case. In a well-tried case, they get it right, Mike, every time. And you shared that with me before. And I'm curious about that notion because let's assume now that you've got equally qualified trial lawyers pitted against one another. And as you say, at the heart of trial work is storytelling. And so you've got two ESOPs. These men and women are matched toe to toe, assuming that the merits are relatively equal for each side. The skill set is relatively equal for each side. How can you say the jury gets it right, Warren, right? As opposed to Warren had the better argument that day, or Mike had the better argument. Is the better argument the same as right, or am I missing something? I love that question. I love it because it doesn't get any better than that. A really, really close case and a really, really good lawyer on the other side who tries a really, really good case, and so do you. And it comes down to, okay, this is a horse race, and who can get just a little edge with whether it's personality, whether it's charm, whether it's consideration for the other side, going over and putting your hand on his shoulder, being nice, standing up, offering a chair, little things, tiny little things that jurors pick up. They are so good about that. They're watching every move, and I intend for them to. You get a little edge. You find one or two jurors that you really think are your friends, you've watched them for the three weeks of this trial, and you really think they're with you, then you beam those arguments right to them, things that will sell them. And you hope they'll be your friends when they get back in the back, and they'll make some new friends, some other friends for you, and they'll convince the others. Yeah, that makes sense. Warren, before we part ways, I want to take up one more serious topic, and that's diversity in the practice. I am African-American, and I have often been in settings where I was the only person of color in the courtroom. And I've wondered whether when the trial begins, the jury makes note of my race in any way, for the better, for the worse, or whether at some point the jury just sees a trial lawyer. And I honestly don't know. When I have the chance to engage with someone like you on this, I'm curious. What do you think? You think race matters at trial or gender? I think race and gender might matter for the first two or three minutes of a trial. Maybe it's a little longer, but as soon as that jury sees that that African-American lawyer or that female lawyer has done her homework and knows the case cold and is not wasting their time, and is utterly fair to the other side. All they're seeing now is a trial lawyer. All they're seeing is, by golly, that lawyer is good. That lawyer knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it disappears. And that's the way it ought to be. I'm so proud of the women and the minority lawyers 
that we have in this firm and that I see excelling in the courtroom. And it's high time. It took a long time for us to get there, but we're there, I think, Mike. So you've seen some significant strides in Alabama. Absolutely. Mike, when I started trying cases, there were no women on the jury. For goodness sake. It's like, I don't know, maybe ancient medieval England. I don't know. On the jury? There were no women on the juries? No, they weren't called for jury service. Listen, Mike, I began long before you were born, maybe, I don't know, 64? Yeah. We didn't have women. And get this, the African-Americans, they had a few of them on the jury rolls, and they would call them for service, but they would leave them back in the jury assembly room. They wouldn't bring them down to the courtroom. And this was just an understanding among the judges. And it just wasn't right. And finally, somebody figured out, hey, wait a minute, that's don't have this gentleman's understanding anymore. Back then, it was men, mostly. Bring them all. Bring everybody. And everything began to even out a lot more. Everything began to be a whole lot fairer when you had women and minorities right in the thick of it. So, you know, we've talked about diversity at the bar. How do you think diversity among the jury changed outcomes, if at all, of trials? Did trials change because your jury panel, because your venire changed? That's a good question. I think that back in the early days, when African-Americans began to be called for jury duty, plaintiff lawyers sensed that they might be a little bit more inclined to give money away than some of the, say, rednecks. And so they would strike that jury so as to keep more African-Americans. We on the defense side were doing just the reverse of that. And if you got a jury that was composed fairly evenly, it didn't matter. But if you got it tilted way one way or another, then it could affect the outcome, I think. Back in the old days, I'm not sure it does now. I really, really look forward to trying cases in front of diverse jurors. I do. And it's going to seem petty, but I do what I can to get an, an interesting balance of gender and ethnicity and, you know, to the extent I can and voir dire, diversity of viewpoint. I think my chances are better with a cross section. I do. But I do have one final question for you. If you could go back and do it all over again, what about your practice would you change? And I'm not asking you if you would change something. I'm forcing you to identify something that you would change. What would you change? I definitely, definitely would not settle so many cases. My, my goodness. I had 93 cases that I tried to verdict. Well, that's not that many in 44 years. But my goodness, Mike, over those years, I must have settled hundreds and hundreds of cases. And in many of those instances, I was going to win that case. And it would have been a fun case. And I loved being in the courtroom. But there was pressure. There was pressure from my client. Or there was pressure from inside me. Or there was pressure from the judge. Settlement offered a release, offered sanctuary, a return to normal. It had a siren call that I found hard to resist sometimes. I should have resisted it, Mike. I should have said, no, we don't try this case. And if I had, if I'd done it right, instead of 93 verdicts, I would have had 250 verdicts. That's the way I should have done it. So yes, that's a regret. And I hope young lawyers will take that to heart. Yeah, well, don't beat yourself up. I think we're all guilty of that to some degree. As, as you say, there is pressure. And I wonder, Warren, I wonder to what extent in the settlements or the resolutions where we are, but so far off from right about where the case should be, right? So in other words, should we beat ourselves up, but so much if the case settles right in the neighborhood of where it ought to be. 
I know. I know. And you have to say, well, I think we got to a fair place. That's a just result. Yeah. I'm just thinking selfishly. Toward the end of my career, Mike, I spent a lot of time telling my clients, okay, we're not going to settle this case now. Come on. And they were scared to death of these Alabama juries. And I would say, okay, tell you what, let me try it one day. Let's just see how one day goes. And we would try it and we would kick some ass, Mike. And I said, okay. They said, we still want to settle. I said, give me one more day. And they said, okay, one more, but we're going to settle. I said, okay. The next day, more headway. By the third day, they said, well, you know, maybe, okay, it's going pretty well. So, hell, I was negotiating behind the scenes. Then I was negotiating with the other side while the trial's going on. Many times that happens, in addition to trying the case. But it's all exhilarating. Sure. Do you miss it? I don't miss it, Mike. I'd have to be honest. I don't miss it one bit. I loved it. I loved what I did. But I love being retired. I mean, this is boring. I love playing Duke Bridge and, and doing bronze sculpting. That's what I love now. Yeah. And I will say to our audience that you are an avid and renowned bronze sculptor. And if we had more time, we'd spend some more time talking about it. But just take my word. Look him up. Look up his work. It's phenomenal. Warren, you've been great. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing you hopefully at an annual meeting sometime. You bet. Thank you, Mike. You have a good day. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.